Father, we rejoice in this time together. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity we've had this summer being into your word and looking through the the book of Acts, uh, Paul's epistles. I ask, Father, that as we now jump into 2 Timothy tonight, that we're going to really handle, number one, handle the word of God correctly. Father, we're going to get into some, some deep things tonight. And I do pray for wisdom and excellence of spirit to be able to handle your word in a way that truly honors it and honors Christ Jesus. I ask, Father, that you would show us very specifically how we are to walk out this truth. Father, we don't want to just know the truth. We want to live in the truth. So help us as we do that. Father, I ask that we would avoid godless chatter, that, that Father, we would be faithful to your word. Father, we would flee youthful lusts and we would follow after righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who pursue Jesus with a pure heart. Father, these things beat in our heart. And I ask God that as we now look into 2 Timothy to round out our study in this class, uh, I just pray, speak truth, let us live in that truth, and let us shine that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we looked at 1 Timothy last week. Test question, when was Timoth- 1 Timothy written? Someone help me out here. When was 1 Timothy written? 62. Uh, probably not 62. That Probably a little bit too early. No, help me out. Come on, guys. Give me the circumstance, because the circumstance, honestly, is the most important thing. It was something about prison, but house arrest. It was when he was in house arrest, right? In Rome? No. Paul is actually not in prison during 1 Timothy. Yes. After the house arrest. After he's been released from house arrest in Rome, he goes on his fourth missionary journey. He drops Timothy off in Ephesus while he heads into Macedonia. Yes. So Titus is written about the same time as 1 Timothy, maybe before, maybe after. Paul left Timothy in Crete, did the same thing, and then wrote to him. So Titus functioned apostolically, setting in leaders like Paul and Barnabas did in Acts 14, 33, 34, where when he on his first missionary journey on his way back, they, he, he appointed elders in all the churches. Understand, by the way, that the elders that he probably set in place were very recent converts, but they had no doubt had known the word, the Old Testament, for a long time. Okay, they just needed the Jesus part. Okay, they had already heard the messianic prophecies. They had already been looking forward to the coming Messiah. And then to realize that Jesus was that Messiah, what he accomplished for them, actually who he was, what he accomplished on the cross, that came together, the puzzle pieces fit, and they became Christians. Um, I'm sure that they had been devouring the word but they were, character-wise, they were more than likely ready to 
be said in his elders. Okay, so I just want you to know in the very beginning, it, it Paul planted that church and, um, and almost immediately turned around and set elders in. And he did that because his strategy, or he could do that because his strategy was to go to synagogues first because that's where people would know the word and had already had a relationship with God. They just needed to know about Jesus. Okay? All right. Now, Second Timothy. So here, Timothy has been left in Ephesus. The question is whether Timothy is still in Ephesus. Some believe that he still is. My Bible, my uh, Bible study uh, Bible suggests that he is, but there is no passage in Second Timothy that would suggest that he's still in Ephesus. We just don't know. He is somewhere because the letter was taken to him. All right. Someone had to know where he was. Paul had to know where he was. He wasn't traveling about, so he was located in one place. Paul knew this, sent the letter to him, and he is encouraging him to come visit him. We'll get to that in a moment. So 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy is written between 62 and 66 AD. We don't know exactly, probably about 64, 65. That would give Paul time to start his fourth missionary journey drop Titus off, Timothy off in their respective cities, and then turn around and write these letters. For 2 Timothy, he was arrested around 66 AD, preaching the gospel. This is under the Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero stepped in in 56 AD, reigned until uh, 68 AD. 64 AD marks the time in which he set Rome on fire. Nero is a crazy guy. He was just a crazy guy. Cicero writes about him later and confesses that this guy was, and I'm, that he, those are my words, but he's a crazy guy. He tried to fix the blame of burning Rome on the Christians, and Cicero can read between the lines. He obviously, Nero was looking for a scapegoat. It's Cicero, a, a Roman senator, historian, knows this. Yeah. I was just wondering, is there history proofs that Nero was actually the responsible for causing the, the burning? Um, well, it, it's debatable, but uh, I would venture to say that most people, most historians, lean in that direction, that he is the one who set the, the fires. Um, it's been a while since I've actually studied that. It's not like he went around with a match, lots of matches, and lit Rome on fire. It just started in one place. But regardless, um, Nero was a tyrannical leader. When he died, um, you might have heard of the, oh, what do they call it? it? It's the three emperors reigning in one year. One right after the other until Vespasian takes the throne and then he gives the order to his son Titus, who's a general at the time, destroy Jerusalem. In 70 AD, they destroyed Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been under siege for three and a half years. And then finally Vespasian, who takes the throne. Most of the emperors reign between two and eight months. And he takes the throne and he just says, do it. And Titus charged in, mercilessly destroyed Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands were killed. Um, they, there were about 30,000 that were taken as slaves 
Many of them were crucified outside the city gates. Um, it was truly Jerusalem's worst nightmare in all of history. All of history. Um, Josephus suggests that there were about 1.1 million Jews, which generally I think there were about 200,000 in Jerusalem. So how they packed them in there, um, historians think that Josephus was probably exaggerating, but they could have been staying in inns all around, like in Bethlehem, which is only a few miles away. Other towns and cities were only a few miles away from Jerusalem, but it was during the Passover feast. So that's when people come from all around, all over the Roman Empire, Jews. And, and so anyway, it was during that time, and they besieged the temple. So Nero, anyway, was a lunatic. He ordered um, just horrendous persecution of Christians, and he did this to try and fix the blame of the burning of Rome on them. And it lasted for years. Now, Paul is in a dungeon. We find in chapter 1 that Onesimus, excuse me, Onesiphorus, had to look for him. Now, if you've seen the movie, Paul, Apostle of Christ, Luke has to look for him. He has to ask around in order to find him. As you read in chapter 4, um, Luke has left him. And, excuse me, Luke is the only one with him. Others, Crescens, Titus, Crescens went to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Demas, who loved the world, deserted him. We look in chapter 1, it says in verse 15, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. And in Greek, you don't pronounce his name Hermogenes, okay? But that's how in English we would pronounce it. So they the, the reason for this is because if you associated yourself with Paul, there would be a very strong likelihood that they would nab you as a Christian and throw you into jail as well. For this reason, it appears that Timothy is extremely hesitant in visiting Paul and he has not yet visited him. Paul has already had, we learn in chapter 4, he's already had a trial. And in that trial, I, I guess it was not decided, guilty or innocent, so they set another date, and that date is coming up. And you get that feel when you read through chapter 4. We'll get to there at the end of the, the class time. The, the, the immediate charge then to Timothy is, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel, verse 8, don't be ashamed of the gospel, and, nor uh, nor me, uh, who, who's in prison. This is the thrust of the preceding verses, okay, where he says, he's talking about his sincere faith. Notice that in verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did. Paul talks about his forefathers. They held on to the word of God. Paul, of course, being disillusioned and adamantly opposed to Christ, began persecuting the church in legalistic zeal. Um, and you know the story of his conversion. But his forefathers 
were godly Jewish people. And the reason why he brings this up is because now he turns to Timothy. All right. Now he turns to Timothy. (laughs) Thank you, Diego. And he is appealing to Timothy's heritage as well. Instead of his forefathers, he looks at his foremothers. Not F-O-U-R. F-O-R-E. He appeals to his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. Did I get that? Yes. Sometimes I get those names switched around. So Lois, his grandmother, Eunice, his mother. And I'm persuaded, he says, this sincere faith now lives in you also. So verse 6, for this reason... The sincere faith that is in you. This is what he's appealing to. It was in my forefathers. It was in your foremothers, whatever. It's in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, we've talked about this time in which the elders laid hands on Timothy. A prophetic word came out and a gift with that prophetic word was imparted to Timothy. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, that's chapter 4, in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, he challenges Timothy to remember those prophecies that were given about him. Whatever they were, we don't know. But I would imagine that it had to do with what he was doing right now. Functioning apostolically, standing firm in the faith, um, that God's hand of protection perhaps would be upon him. And so he reminds Timothy of those prophecies. Here, he's saying, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, this gift of God is not the Greek word dorea. That would generally be the Greek word used for the spirit as the gift of God. This is the Greek word charismata. So it is spiritual gifts. That This is a spiritual gift that Timothy has, that he is now challenging him to fan into flame. What does that tell us then, at least a little bit, about spiritual gifts? Number one, they are based in grace, charis, grace, mata. So they are sometimes literally translated gracelets, but they're spiritual gifts rooted in God's grace. But according, they're exercised according to our faith, Romans 12. So he in essence is saying, I'm appealing to this sincere faith in you. By that faith, fan this gift into flame. Something is wrong, Timothy. Now, we find out what's wrong in verse 8, that Timothy is toying with this idea, should I visit Paul or not? And Paul is kind of second-guessing I feel like there is a shame that's associated with this reason of Timothy not coming. There's a fear. There's a fear that he too will be thrown into prison. Um, Paul then challenges him to fan this gift into flame. This is why it leads many people to think that this gift that was given to him was evangelism or proclaiming the gospel, or teaching the gospel, or apostolic ministry, which would, as Paul says in verse 11, I was appointed a herald, and an apostle, and a teacher. Okay, so an apostle does a number of different things. Um, Actually, an apostle, to some degree, functions prophetically, evangelistically, pastorally, and teaches. Okay? 
So the other three or four gift ministries. So he is challenging him to move in this spiritual gift. Something fear, shame is holding him back. And that's why he says in verse 7, For God did not give you, Timothy, a spirit of timidity. He didn't give you a spirit of fear. But he gave you a spirit of power. In other words, when you speak, there is power He gave you a spirit of love, which is the underlying reason why he should be evangelizing, and of self-discipline, focus, self-control, not allowing that fear to reign in his heart, but allowing faith to rise up. So Paul, again, Paul is appealing to the sincere faith and saying, let it just burst forth from you, Timothy. Don't be afraid. And, And again, he comes to this, we know what he's getting at, He kind of lays the cards on the table. He says, so do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or or ashamed of me, his prisoner. Now, keep your thumb here in 2 Timothy and turn over to Hebrews 13.23, okay? Hebrews 13, 23. There's 13 chapters in in Hebrews. Uh, Verse 23, there's 25 verses. So that's how close to the end this verse comes to us. And the author of Hebrews says, and Hebrews was written before 70 AD. When he talks about the temple and the priests, he talks about them as if they're still existing and the priests are still functioning. After 70 AD, the priests did not function in the temple. Okay, so that's why we know it was written before 70 AD. So very close to the death, or or very close to the death of uh, martyrdom of Paul. He says this, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Now, by being released, we understand that to mean being released from prison. This leads many people, including myself, to believe that Timothy responded to Paul's letter here and the challenge to not be ashamed. Chapter 2, endure hardships like a good soldier. Weather these hardships. Don't be afraid. Trials are going to come. Fight the good fight. These types of things that we read about in 2 Timothy. Timothy probably came, and within the year, he was also put into prison. He was released, it was probably after 68 AD, in which there's a lot of confusion with the emperors, probably sometime in there, Timothy is released because Nero was the one who was so heavy-handed. There was a lot of espionage at the time, and one emperor overthrowing the next to gain the throne, and then finally Vespasian. So I'm going to guess that before Vespasian sits on the throne, uh, but after Nero dies is when Timothy is released. Probably thrown into prison during Nero's reign, but released afterwards. So Timothy took this to heart, it would appear. It would appear. It cost him something. Now, I want you to think about this. This was, and and not just Timothy, but Paul's imprisonments. 
two years in Caesarea, two years in house arrest, a year or two, year or two, maybe more, um, in Rome again in the dungeon. Tradition says, by the way, that he was beheaded. But wow, why would God put Timothy on the? Sh- excuse me, why would God put Paul on the shelf? And even Timothy, Timothy ended up in prison. Why would He do that? Wouldn't God? want these guys released and spreading the gospel everywhere. Now, you may recall that it was probably during these imprisonments that Paul wrote somewhere around half of his letters. Okay? He had time. He probably spent time in study of the scriptures as well because he had more time to do that. It says in Philippians, when he's under house arrest, that it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am here for the sake of the gospel. Okay? So even in Paul's lowest moments, God still reigns supreme. God still maximizes his glory and achieves his ultimate purposes. And I'm sharing that with you because in the midst of your worst trial, your hardest hardship, God's glory has the potential to be maximized through you. Okay? Never forget that. Never forget that. Endure hardship like a good soldier. All right, so Paul then goes on and he he speaks about this good deposit. Do you see that in verse 14? Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. So the deposit is not the Holy Spirit, but it is rather the truth. Now, we, we talked about the deposit last week, and here it's called the good deposit, and that good deposit would be the truth, the gospel. Guard it. And so... He, he is trying to challenge him. This is a time of persecution and people, they want to hear the good stuff. They want to hear the fun stuff of Christianity. They want to hear a word of hope, not a word of anyone who would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Ah, what? Stop saying that. By the way, that's in chapter three. I want to hear something good. I want to hear something that's uh, that's going to say I'm going to prosper. I want to hear something that says that no harm is going to come to me, and I'm I want to hear that I'm my business is going to be the biggest business in Asia, or that God is going to give me a really big house, or that there's not going to be any more hardships. Tell me something like this. Tell give me something to hope in, and. Or, or tell me, uh, something that is, you know, that when I, when I choose to follow Jesus, everything's going to get better. Tell me something like this. But we find out in chapter four, it says, instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth. And turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship. Okay? Do the work of an evangelist. So don't be ashamed. Come see me. Proclaim the gospel. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Okay? So he is entrusted with this good deposit. He's to guard it. Um, 
And to guard it means you can't be ashamed of it. Be, don't be like uh, Philetus and Hermogenes. Be like Onesiphorus and come to me, refresh me. Don't be ashamed of my chains. You're going to have to search for me. And that's what Onesiphorus did until he found him. Um, but regardless. Um, then he, I want us to look at this in chapter 2. He says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So we challenged him concerning sincere faith in chapter 1. Now he's going to focus on God's grace in chapter 2. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Tell me how many generations, now that he's guarding this deposit, he's challenging him, by God's grace, proclaim this teaching. And my question is in verse 2 of chapter 2, how many generations of disciples are there? Starting with Paul. List them off for me. There's four. List them off. Starting with Paul, that's number one. Timothy. Timothy. Reliable men. Others. I'm sorry, what? I, I still. Okay. And and what's the la- reliable men? And what's the last one? Others. Others. Okay. So reliable men who will teach others. Four generations. I've heard it said that when you're a parent. You really don't know how good of a parent you were until your grandchildren. Some would even say, well, you know what? Actually, you're great-grandchildren. Now, here's why. The proof of the pudding is not completely found in how your children turn out. Because part of what you're doing with your children is not just teaching them to be godly, but you are teaching them to train their children to be godly. And so consequently, do they turn around and teach their children to be godly? Now, part of being godly is training your children to be godly. So how do you know if your grandchildren are godly, they will teach their children to be godly? And so there's four generations there. Okay, did you see that? That might have been a little confusing for you. But the idea is that it's not just godliness and Christian character we're looking for, but we are looking for Christian character that's reproduced. That should be the passion that beats in our heart, not just for apostles in making disciples. Okay, but it is to train spiritual children who will train others. And so we see four generations here. And Timothy then is being challenged to do this. But the context that Paul puts this in is in hardship. Again, throughout the letter, hardship. This is where it's going to be really hard because fear is going to make you want to shut your mouth and say nothing. It's to meet so privately that it's going to be hard to meet. And because you're going to be afraid that soldiers will be coming into your home. So, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be afraid to guard the gospel and to promote the gospel and teach the gospel boldly in season and out of season. Now, he gives three analogies here. The first 
is a soldier, the second is an athlete, the third is a farmer. Now, what I do in my Bible to kind of highlight things and see consistency, in this case, I put a box around the word soldier, a box around the word athlete, and a box around the word farmer. I generally will do that with nouns and circle verbs. And again, you want to be able to step back in uh, especially some of Paul's longer sentences, but in any portion of scripture and be able to see how that passage hangs together. Okay. Are there three main verbs or is there just one? When you look at Matthew 28, 20, uh, or 19 and 20, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them whatever I've commanded you. There's actually one verb with three modifying participles. And so you can, when you know that, then you can kind of highlight these things accordingly. Maybe put a circle around the main verb, make disciples, and underline the participles. Okay, so how do you make disciples? By going, by baptizing, by teaching. All right, so I'm going to encourage you to do stuff like that. Now, the analogy then with the soldiers and with the athlete is similar. It tells us that in verse 5, right? That's what, is that what your Bible says? Verse 5, first word, my first word in my Bible, NIV, is similarly. So the, the main point of soldier and athlete is similar, the same, but it, with the farmer, it's different. So with the soldier, it's the fact the soldier doesn't get into civilian affairs. With the athlete, it's that he competes according to the rules. So I'm going to suggest that for a soldier to get involved in civilian affairs is just like the athlete that breaks the rules. Okay? And it's like the Christian that compromises. Okay? Don't do that. Don't compromise. Understand Timothy is being tempted to compromise. Allow fear to enter his heart not endure hardships to be, for Timothy, to be timid. Um, the farmer then focuses more on the rewards as a result of his labors. Okay, So, Paul, understand, this is going to be hard. Don't compromise on this. Do what you're called to do. And I'll read it again, but he says in chapter 4, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Do it. Timothy, just do it. Don't be afraid, okay? And and that's a word for us, guys. In in our hard situations, like at work, um, it can be hard to evangelize your boss, to bring up the subject of, of God. I'm going to challenge you, look for those opportunities. I know it is really hard for me to find those opportunities, but when I interact with the used car, new car managers in what they call the tower, it's a room where the salespeople go in, talk with the managers, and then go out and deal with the customer and you know try and make their sale. And I will go into the, the tower... Uh, and on occasion, I wish there were more. I pray for more of these opportunities. The conversation will lend itself to talking about God, and I will seek to pursue that. And I will test the waters. I will ask questions, and I will try, and then, or I'll just give my opinion right out there. And so I'm just going to encourage you. Um, I know for me, I wish that I would be even bolder 
I truly do. I'm going to challenge you. In those times in which you're at work or at the grocery store in which it's, it, well, it just feels awkward. Well, you know what? You can still shine Jesus. You can still ask good questions. You can see a pin with a smiley face on the cashier's and for whatever reason, maybe all of them have smiley faces, smiley face buttons. Ask them, so what is it in life that really, I see you have a smiley face. What is it in life that really makes you happy? Charlene, whatever her name is. And, and let her, while she's ringing you up, have her answer that question. And then all you, you may have like only seconds, not minutes. Because there's people behind you. If there's no people behind you, just stand there and keep talking to her. But just say, can I just share with you the thing that has brought the greatest joy in my life? Now, granted, I'm a dad of five kids, and I'm married to an amazing woman, and they bring me so much joy. But I have a joy that I have encountered years ago when I was a teenager that I would love to tell you about. And it's found in one word, Jesus. I know Jesus. And that's, if I had a smiley button, I would put it on too, because he would be the reason why I'd be smiling. You you can share stuff. Just look for this. Look for those opportunities to, uh, to share Christ. And you know what? If it comes off a little awkward, what are they going to say? Oh goodness. That's really awkward. I have done that. You know what? I have changed the subject a little bit too abruptly, and it's been a little awkward. I have never had anyone tell me that. But we fear it, don't we? I have a yeah. Question. Okay. So, for me, I feel like if I don't get to share the gospel and let them know, like, you know, you're a sinner, you need to repent. If I don't get to say it, I feel like I'm not evangelizing, even if I get to say the name Jesus. Um, I am not saying that you just need to walk up to people and see, you know what, smile, I see that smiley face, my answer is Jesus, and then go. I mean, they're going to think, what, that was really awkward and weird and irrelevant and what, because they've heard Jesus before. So tell them a little bit about Jesus. Tell them something, because we live in a post-Christian nation, Okay. Most people have heard about Jesus. It's rare that you find someone who hasn't. So they know the name Jesus. So to a degree, I'm going to agree with you, but I don't have to go through all the four or five points of the gospel to finally say, okay, check that one off. I truly shared the gospel with them. All right? Maybe it's just my testimony in 60 seconds. One element of the gospel. When you do your testimony, by the way, I'm going to encourage you, learn how to share the gospel in 10 minutes. It will share your testimony in five to 10 minutes, if you have that time, like on an airplane, or in one to three minutes, in which you just share a nugget. You know, do it in three minutes, and then how would you share it in one minute? Your testimony is one of the easiest ways to share the gospel. It truly is. The reason for that is this is your experience with God. And people in America feel that experiences are like sacred cows. We don't touch them. Like, well, that's your truth, or that's your experience. But very rarely will people speak out harshly against your experience. Now, if you confront them with the gospel, no problem. If they've got it in them, they'll they'll hammer you. 
And I'm sure Timothy had been hammered before. And so, again, it's fear of what might happen. So, yeah, if you share your testimony, very rarely will people shut you down. I'm not saying they won't. But if you just talk about Jesus right out there in front, they're more likely to do that because they've heard about Jesus. Rarely will they say, oh, please tell me more about Jesus. And there's this softening, this tilling of the soil to make a good soil to receive the word. Do you have a question or a comment? Comment. Okay. Okay. Well, let's move on. I want us to come to this. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> it it takes up three verses, 11, 12, and 13. This is more than likely a, a hymn or a song. I prefer to use the word song rather than a hymn. Um, it may be a creed of some sort, things that people would recite. But it says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And again, the focus thus far has been, don't be ashamed, endure hardships. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Again, the farmer receiving a share of the crops, reward, okay? The reward for us is that we will reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. Now, here's what I want to do. I actually want to focus on verses 12 and 13. We need to, first of all, understand there is a difference between disowning Jesus and being faithless. If we're not careful, we will see them as the same thing. They are not. Now, those who hold to the teaching of eternal security see them as the same. I'm going to suggest to you, however, that they are not the same, and that's why they're discussed. Okay? And that's why he's being challenged. Don't disown Jesus. Now, I want to focus first on this concept of disowning Jesus, and then secondly, on being faithless. Because as we look at being faithless, though we may be faithless and understand we got to look at that and unwrap it and understand it. He will not be faithless to us. He will not disown himself. He will be, Jesus will be faithful to us. Okay. And we can actually see a number of examples of that in the gospels. We'll get to that in a moment. So first disown. This Greek word is arneomai, A-R-N-E-O-M-A-I. Okay, arneomai. There is another very similar Greek word, a synonym, and it is ap arneomai. Now, if we were to turn to Matthew 10.33, this is kind of where what Jesus says in Matthew 10.33 is where this comes from. Wow, I hope I wrote down the right verse. Matthew, oh, sorry, I'm in the wrong gospel. Matthew 10, 33 says, yeah, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. Heaven, well, where did that come from? But whoever, yeah, here we go. <laughs> Believe in Jesus and you, can, you too can go to heaven. But whoever <laughs> disowns me, Arneomai, B 
before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. So if you disown Jesus, he will disown you. I'm going to suggest that's pretty serious. But if we acknowledge him, he will acknowledge us before the Father and all of the angels, it says. Now, here is a question. Some of your versions say deny instead of disown. That's fine. Did Peter deny or arneomai Jesus three times? Because if he did, then how did Jesus deny him or disown him? He didn't. He actually welcomed him three times in the last chapter of John. Do you love me? Yes. Then feed my sheep. And he, re- in essence, he asks him three times, do you love me? And then reinstates him. Pe- you know, theologians call this Peter's reinstatement. I have forgiven you. Now feed my sheep. I placed you as, as an apostle. Feed my care for my lambs. Okay. Now, here is the thing though. I want us to actually go to Matthew 26 and see how this actually plays out. Because I am going to suggest to you that G- Peter did not deny Jesus our neomai. Okay? Is it, the same word? it is our neomai. He did not do that to Jesus. I hope you're curious right now. Because you have been taught that he denied him. All right. And by the way, he did, but it's a different word. All right. So if we look at chapter 26, oops, hang on a second. Chapter 26, verse 70. No, that can't be right. Okay. Yeah, here we go. 70 and 72. So the servant girl says, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. Some translations say he denied him. There is actually no pronoun after this Greek word denied, and it is this Greek word arneomai. Who or what did Peter deny? Jesus. Being with Jesus. He did not deny Jesus. He denied a fact. This is important. He denied a fact not a person. I'm going to suggest to you, in 72, we see the same thing. He denied it again. This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied that. So he denied a fact. He did not deny a person. To disown Jesus means more than just saying, "Mm, I don't know him. All right, it's more than that. We would have to do a huge study on that just to see what it means to deny Jesus. Because you don't just do it in a single word or a single phrase or a single action. It is a lifestyle of disowning him. This is what Paul is challenging Timothy. Do not go down that road. And he introduces us to... Um, one second. Hymenaeus and Philetus who actually have disowned Jesus. Okay? We're going to get there in in just a moment. Stay with me, though, in Matthew 26. I heard some pages turning. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 70. 
Well, no, excuse me. Verse 34. Matthew 26, verse 34. Okay, where did I go here? Here we go, here we go. Jesus, in the upper room, they just had the Passover meal. He says, I tell you the truth, this very night before the rooster crows, you, Peter, will disown me three times. Now, see, Peter did disown Jesus, but it is this Greek word, up, arneomai. Now, maybe I'm splitting hairs here. This is a compound of arneomai with the Greek word, apa, but it is not arneomai. When this word that Paul uses with Timothy, arneomai, is used, Peter never arneomai Jesus. He never denied Jesus. He only denied a fact. Now, but so even though Peter did not arneomai Jesus, he did up arneomai him. Okay? Now, I do think that that's significant because there is a nuance in that word that um, the scripture focuses on. And when we actually see it played out in verse 75, after he had denied Jesus three times, aparneumai Jesus three times, or arneumai knowing or, or, or being with Jesus, it says immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me, aparneumai, three times. Okay, it's from the Greek word apa, from or away, um, and so the, the whenever you add a preposition to a word, it changes slightly the meaning of that word. But these are two synonyms, and so it's hard to know exactly how the word changes. I am just showing you that aparneomai is not used with Peter denying Jesus. Excuse, yeah. Arneomai is not used with Peter denying Jesus, denying the fact. Let, let me say that one. It is not used with him denying Jesus. Op arneomai is, okay? The word that Paul uses here with Timothy is arneomai. When you arneomai a person, that is what he is talking about. Um, there, an argument can be made that in the Greek, if you turn back to Second Timothy, the word him is not in the Greek. If we disown him, and that is my point when you disown a person. But guess what? Go back to you in the very beginning. If we died with him, him is not in the Greek either. It literally says, if we died with. Yeah, finish the phrase, please. We denied, we, we, we died with, with who? With what? Um, we will also live with, and that's how the Greek reads. There's no him. That is clearly to be supplied. And I'm going to suggest to you in verse 13, it is clearly to be supplied as well. Verse 12, if we endure, the Greek says, we will also reign with. No him. So it's clearly to be supplied just as it is in verse, in, when it says, if we disown him, he will also disown us. So what I am saying is Paul is challenging Timothy. Don't flirt with this. 
You know, Demas, who loved the world, deserted him. And Demas flirted with him. I'm not saying that Demas left the faith. I'm not saying that. But Demas flirted with this, disowning Jesus. Okay? He allowed fear to control him. Now, I am not saying that when you have an opportunity to evangelize and out of fear you don't, you're denying Jesus. I'm not saying that. Because if we were to, and we're not going to do that, look into what it means to apostatize, to disown Jesus, there is a whole lot more. And we would actually, to be fair with Scripture, take hours going through Hebrews, Second Peter 2, Romans 11, many other passages that teach this. <coughs> Then, and we don't have time for that. Yeah, I can direct you to the class, uh, theology class in which we dig into it. We take two classes to do that. But, um, here then, as we move on, if we deny Jesus, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, so what's the difference between being faithless and disowning Jesus? What's the difference? Because in how Jesus responds, there is a difference. If you disown him, he will disown you. But if you're only faithless, it says he will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself, implying even though right now you are faithless, I cannot disown you or deny you because that would be, that would be disowning himself. Okay. So do you see that? So there's a difference between disowning Jesus and being faithless. Now this word faithless, can be used um, many and is used many times to describe unbelievers, those who do not have faith. But the disciples were described this way. The disciples, Jesus, <coughs> when he walks on the water, um, he he in one version. In let me just tell you what version that is. One gospel, excuse me. Not version. Matthew 8.26, he says that, oh, Matthew 8.26, let me just turn there real quickly. I think that's the one that says that they were faithless, had no faith. 8.20, excuse me, little faith. They had little faith. However, when Mark records it, Mark tells us Jesus said that they had no faith. Oh, you who have no faith. So I'm going to suggest to you that this word, little faith, which is one Greek word, and having no faith are synonyms because at that moment, the disciples had no faith. But it's not that they never have faith. Sometimes they do have faith. Sometimes they don't. During the storm here, and Jesus is walking on water, they had no faith. But later they do have faith. They cast out demons. They healed the sick later. Yeah, they had faith. But then at other times, trying to cast out the demon of the boy. Father brings a boy to him and they can't cast the demon out. Why? Because you had no faith. Or little faith. So this word faithless is a synonym for little faith. There are times in which we have faith and there are times in which we don't have faith. And at those times when we don't have faith, Jesus will be faithful. Okay? 
He will be faithful to you. Those moments in which fear controls you and you miss opportunities, Jesus, Jesus is faithful. And those times in which people ask you, so uh, do you follow Jesus? And you take a, you just simply say, uh, yeah, I grew up in the church. Wow, what an opportunity to share your testimony. All you say is, yeah, I grew up in the church. Because everybody grows up in a church in America, just about 80 some percent do. So it's a safe answer. And you feel guilty afterwards. And you repent, God, why did I chicken out? So at that moment, you had no faith. Jesus is not going to disown you. Jesus is faithful. And guess what? When we handle that with the right attitude, and we just say, you know what, Lord, I really blew it. Would you forgive me? And we don't wallow in this self-condemnation. But then on the other hand, we recognized that we failed him at that moment. And so we repent. We don't just move on. Ah, that's no big deal. In fact, you know, anytime I need to play it safe, I will. Now, that's not the right attitude either. When, when we have the right attitude, I'm going to tell you this. God's going to give you another opportunity. That's just who he is because he's faithful. He wants your light to shine. He's going to give you opportunities and you're going to blow it many times. In fact, many times I've blown it. And guess what? Jesus still has given me opportunities. He didn't just say, you know, Mike, I'm weary of you. I'm going to put you on the shelf. No more, no more opportunities. I'm not going to let you minister in any, you know, God is still patient with me. I have failed him probably more than most of you, if not all of you. Probably because I'm almost twice your age, most of you. So, but anyway, I've had more opportunities to, to fail, I guess. And I have. Um, but I think I've, for most of them, I've had the right ad- attitude and I've repented. And the result is we serve a Jesus who is so faithful and he's going to give you more opportunities. Okay. So, you know what, Timothy, you may have been faithless in some of these opportunities. I'm calling you to that sincere faith. I'm calling you to follow me, to follow Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. This is the gift of proclaiming this gospel. Fan it into flame. Fan it into flame, Timothy. And God, Jesus is going to be faithful. All right? I think Timothy responded to this well. And that's why he ended up in prison at some point. I I do think that Hebrews, the writing of Hebrews does follow 2 Timothy, but I might be wrong on that. So we move on. Now, some of you have the King James, and the King James says, study to show yourself approved. Um, tell you what, before we move on into that, that would be uh, verse 15. Study to show yourself approved. And you, you know what? Forgive me. I'm not going to have you stretch your legs. You can stand up and stretch your legs. Some of you have already started to do that. You can stand up and stretch, stretch your legs, but I'm going to keep talking, okay? Or I'm going to get, okay, Diego, maybe you want to keep talking. Go for it. So, in the plain translation, it says that Peter denied who is Jesus. He denied? He says, like, I don't know who he is. In Second Timothy? In Matthew. Okay. Um, well, who he is, is supplied. All the Greek says is he denied. That's all it says. The Greek says Peter denied. Well, what did he deny? He didn't deny Jesus. He denied 
it, that is, what the person said. So does the English and the Spanish translation are not accurate compared to the Greek? They're trying to supply you, because it doesn't sound right. So Peter, in response to what the servant girl said, so Peter denied. Yeah, denied what? So the English supplies the word it, which is very fair. That's what Jesus, that's what Peter is denying. He's not denying Jesus. He's denying what the girl said. I thought I saw you with Jesus. No, you didn't. He's denying the fact. Yeah, they're, so both of them are trying to supply us with what is implied in the Greek. Okay. All right, I'm going to continue on here. Study to show yourself approved. In 1611, when the King James was written, the word study, I'm sure, was a very fine apropos word to use. In our day, it is not. Unfortunately, people do not realize this. And in using the King James, they believe that this verse is saying, study the Bible. But that's not what it's saying. I'm suggesting to study the Bible, okay? But that's just not what this verse is saying. This verse is better translated, um, do your best, like the NIV translates it, um, to show yourself approved. Do what is necessary to show yourself approved. Which would be what? Not being ashamed, guarding the good deposit, and speaking it. Okay? That's what the good workman does. Okay? That's how he is approved. And he handles the word of God correctly. So when he speaks it, he handles it correctly. Now, I'm going to skip. Maybe I should have thrown this in later, but Hymenaeus and Philetus are two examples of men who have not handled the word of God properly. They have actually, it says they have wandered from the faith. Excuse me, wandered from the truth. Other, There's other passages that talk about wandered from the faith. Wandered away from the truth. That tells me that at one time they acknowledged the truth. They had the truth. They even taught the truth, but now they don't. They've abandoned it. They've gotten into godless chatter, old wives' tales, Jewish myths, genealogies, you name it. These two men are examples of that. What he focuses on is that they deny the resurrection. Now, there's probably a whole lot more to what Hymenaeus and Philetus teach, but it is probably of a Gnostic tendency, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, Gnostic tendency, and that is <clears throat> they believed in a spiritual resurrection, but not a physical resurrection. And so this is it, guys. You have one life to live. Let's go for it. Um, Gnostic tendencies, well, they, there's a lot involved in Gnosticism that I'm not going to get into, but he is saying that they are destroying the faith of some. That's that's pretty strong. If if I hold to eternal security, I'm going to have to wrestle with this. It is it, how can you destroy faith? Either that faith can be resurrected because it was not completely destroyed or it was not genuine faith. This verse doesn't imply either of those though. Destroying their faith. 
Okay. Now, Hymenaeus and Alexander, we are told in 1 Timothy 1, shipwrecked their faith. There's recovery from a shipwreck. Sometimes you lose it, but sometimes you recover. Paul's shipwreck that we learn about in Acts 27, he recovered. Usually in a shipwreck, at least some die. God in his sovereignty kept all of them safe. As long as they followed Paul's directive, who, by the way, was not the captain. So they had to rely on this Christian man who claims to be a follower and apostle of Jesus. And what Paul said and what he told them to do, they did it and they were all saved. Okay. Unusual for a shipwreck like this in a hurricane. So, um, <clears throat> these two Hymenaeus and Philetus, Alexander is mentioned in chapter four, the metal worker. He is probably not certain, but probably the same Alexander, but these guys shipwrecked their faith. And now, and Paul says that he turned them over to Satan to be taught a lesson. That's how you treat a brother or sister in the Lord, okay? Or at least one who claims to follow Christ. Now, they he says, he doesn't say that they never knew the faith. They said they have wandered away from the faith, the truth. Alexander has been persecuting Paul and making it very difficult for him. So, enough said on that. In God's sovereignty, he knows those who are his. With man's responsibility, the other quote is, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. That's our responsibility, okay? Uh, evidently, Hymenaeus, Philetus, Alexander did not. Started off with good teaching, right belief, veered off course, shipwrecked their faith, and then wandered away from the truth completely. They did not repent, and their lifestyle followed. They, no, no doubt got into various sins, and that's why he talks about the uh, uh, in a house there are articles for noble purposes and ignoble. And he says, therefore flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the name who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And these two examples, Hymenaeus and Philetus, no longer do. Don't follow them. Pursue what's right. Now, he does say, be very careful how you oppose guys like this. Those who oppose the truth, be very careful. He says, gently instruct them. Do you see that in verse 25, is it? Yes, verse 25. Those who oppose him, that is the servant, those who oppose him, he says, just prior, don't respond out of resentment or anger or, uh, oh, let me give you a zinger, okay? Very common Christians can get into verbal wars and arguments that are absolutely not necessary. As a matter of fact, when we get involved in an argument, when we allow our tempers to get involved and to defend ourselves rather than the truth, with attacking type of words, we are not following Paul's command here. Those who oppose the man of God, the woman of God, we gently instruct. We proclaim truth. We disagree with them. When, when someone's talking to you at the door and they're from a cult, don't say, yeah, 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 okay, uh-huh, yeah. They think you're agreeing with them. Just say, you know what? I disagree with that. 
They can do it. You know what? Mm, the Bible doesn't teach that. Be gracious with them. Speak the truth in love. But don't nod your head and say, yeah, 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 uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. That, that's what we do when we're being gracious with people. But it tacitly tells them, I'm in agreement with you. And you're not. So gently instruct. Those who are at the, at the door, gently instruct them. You know what? I understand that you believe that we have to work our way to heaven, that faith is not enough. Can I share with you what I discovered in the Bible? I've given you 10 minutes to share with me at the door. Can you give me, just give me five minutes and I'll share with you some scripture verses. And after I'm done, I would love to hear what you have to say about those verses that I just read to you. Share with them three or four verses about how it is not by works so that no one will boast. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace, etc., and see what they say, but gently instruct. Don't debate them. Don't get in their face. Don't call them names. Don't slam the door on them. Don't give them the left foot of fellowship. You know what I mean? Don't, don't do any of this stuff. Be gracious with them. Why? Because when people feel attacked, how do they respond? Yes. Yeah, they, they respond defensively. As soon as you're talking with someone and they're on the defensive, they're not listening to you. They have tuned you out. They are now thinking about how they can put one on you, throw a zinger back at you, put you down, humiliate you. You know what? In, if you're in class, if you're in school right now, in a, especially in a secular university, don't think about how you can combat the teacher. Think about how you can graciously speak on behalf of Jesus, but never imagine giving a zinger that humiliates the teacher. Don't go there. Don't ever go there, all right? Because sometimes the teacher will humiliate you. He will call you out. He will say stuff that he shouldn't. You can go to the dean and you can report him. That's fine. But I'm going to encourage you, maybe you shouldn't even do that, but maybe afterwards go to him. And if this person is not teachable, if they do it again, maybe go to the dean then. But gently instruct. Try to win this person. But don't put them on the defensive. Don't attack them with words. And, and you're going to just need to know what are words that come across as attacking and put-downs. And never say, well, yeah, that's, that's a really stupid argument. Can I share with you what the truth is? You just lost them. They will be defensive. They tuned you out. They are now thinking about how they are going to put you in your place. But when you gently instruct, you do so in the hope that God will grant them repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. Isn't that what we're looking for? You want them to change the way they think about truth. And once they change the way they think about truth, they will then embrace the truth. That That's the hope. That is a knowledge. And this is the Greek word, not gnosis, but epignosis, epi. Gnosis, and that means a full knowledge, generally, a full knowledge of the truth and an embracing of the truth, okay? It's when Peter uses a knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's not a knowing about, it is an embracing and experiential knowledge. So when they repent, it leads them to embracing and experiencing the truth. Otherwise, they, uh, and not just repent, I don't, don't let me say otherwise, but rather it will also cause them to come to their senses. And that word come to their sense, senses means 
to bring them to sobriety again. Kind of wake them up from their stupor. I'm not sure if it's the same word or not, but it's similar to the parable of the lost son when he's eaten the pig's will or attempted to eat it. It says he comes to his senses. He becomes sober. Wow, what am I doing? That's our goal here, that this person thinks, wow, what Diego just said to me. Yeah, that makes sense. Their mind is starting to change. They are starting down the pathway of repentance, changing the way they think about the word, about Jesus. That's our goal, right? Coming to their senses and escape the trap of the devil. Okay? Paul again challenges Timothy in chapter 3 about the last days. In 1 Timothy 4, he uses the term later days. Now he uses the last days. There will be future tense, terrible times in the last days. Don't let that throw you. Because he's talking about the last days does not mean that he's talking about that time just prior to Jesus' second coming. Most people understand this to mean that. But I'm going to suggest to you that there's no indication we should understand it that way. The last days, according to Acts 2, is what we're in right now. In these last days... We're going to see plentiful harvest. We're going to see abundance, abundant grace. But we are also going to see the world steeped in sin. We're going to see many wandering from the faith. People's love growing cold. This will happen in future tense. Okay? We're in the last days, but hard times are coming. Okay? I, w- I want to skip over, if if I can, to... The end of chapter three, where he says, all scripture is God breathed. I want to just touch on this. In our day, people are playing with this word inspire. Okay. The word inspire is technically not in line with the Greek word because the Greek word literally means to breathe out. Okay or God-breathed, theopneustos, God-breathed. And so that is actually what my translation says. King James says all Scripture is inspired of God. My version says all Scripture is God-breathed. That's a very literal translation. So all Scripture is expired by God. That is, breathed out, not breathed in. Inspire means to breathe in. Now, I understand the word expire does not mean to breathe out, okay? It means you're dead, all right? That means you gave your last breath, and you died. And that's not. So uh, that's for that reason they don't want to use the word expired, all right? Because, anyway, but... It does mean to God breathed, breathing out. He breathed through godly men who wrote scripture. In our day, people have used this term inspire, which, you know, it it, it got inspired by God. They kind of leave out the God part, but they they understand scriptural, inspiration of scripture, in the same vein as they would a modern-day poet being inspired. 
And I assure you, there is a cavern of difference between the two. Peter tells us that the Holy Spirit carried them along as they spoke. Here, that means that God breathed the words. Actually, scripture is the Greek word graphe. All right, the scripture. The scriptures would be plural, but it's the writings. They, God breathed words in and they wrote. Okay? If these are God breathed, the implication is when we write those words that God breathed into me, they are now without error. Otherwise, they're not God breathed. The writings are God-breathed, okay? God didn't just breathe into me and I thought about it and wrote my own words. No, these words that are on the papyrus, they are breathed through me and I wrote them down, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that they wrote like a dictator, uh, excuse me, that they were dictating, that God was dictating through them. But God used their personality, their experience, their background. That's why Paul writes differently than Peter, who writes differently than Luke, who writes differently than the author of Hebrews. But every word is still God-breathed. God wanted a letter about love. And he formed a man who was filled with anger, along with his brother, two sons of Zebedee, maybe Zebedee, had an anger issue himself. They were called sons of thunder, which means they had a bad temper. That's what they were nicknamed as apostles following Jesus on earth. (laughs) And they came to James, James and John said about the Samaritans who were rejecting Jesus. Should we just call fire down on them? Like, you know, in in second Kings chapter one, where Elijah calls fire down on the, the, the servants of the king who are coming to arrest him or take him to the king, soldiers. Elijah calls fires down and wipes him out. And finally, the third one says, please, please, please don't call fire down from heaven. Just listen to me. But it's, this is so, John had a temper. And the power of God got a hold of John and so transformed him, he became the apostle of love. If there was an apostle who knew love, and here's why I think he knew love more than the, better than all of them. Because he wrestled with the opposite so much. And he just cried out to God. Now, I, I'm, I'm speculating here. But why is it he would be called the son of thunder and yet God would call him to write the epistle of love? It is because there was such an enormous transformation in John's life. And I'm sure he cried out, God, please, I'm an apostle and I need you to change my heart. I want to say something right now that will put this person in their place, but I know I shouldn't. Change my heart. I want to be a servant of God that gently instructs. All right. So anyway, inspired of scripture. So God did this transformation, inspired of God rather. God did this transformation in John and he became the apostle of love. And wrote that letter, First John. All right, and all Scripture is God breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking. We don't like to hear that word, do we? Correcting, a little bit tamer, 
but also in instructing in righteousness so that the man of God or woman of God, of course, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is not so that every man will be able to argue against those who oppose him so that you're going to be a good debater so that you will know a lot about God and a lot about Jesus. Nope. So that you will live for him and you will be equipped to do everything that he instructs you to do. Okay. Every good work. I just want to close and conclude with this uh, chapter in chapter four. I've already read some of it to you, but in view of the coming of Christ and his kingdom and, and God and Jesus as the judge, in view of this, he, he says, be ready to preach. The time is short, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. In the midst of hardship, take your stand as a man of God. And he concludes, and in essence, he's saying, because this is what I have done. As hard as my life is, remember he prayed three times? for that buffeting spirit to be gone. And the father said, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. Because I need you to see that my grace is enough for you. These trials, they're still gonna, these persecutions, they're still gonna come your way. And he had yet to face his imprisonment in Caesarea, Rome, and then finally the last one in which he lost his life. But I still need you to suffer for me. You're my chosen servant and you must see how much you must suffer for me. Remember, that was the call of God on his life that Ananias gave him. You need, you, I've called you to suffer for me. How many of you would love to have that call in your life? Oh my goodness. And, but he is, he is an example of what he's telling Timothy. Endure hardship like a faithful servant of God. And he says this, I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Unlike Hymenaeus and Philetus and Alexander. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And I, I just want to say this. How much... In your life, do you long for Jesus to come back? Is it just during the hard times? Oh, Jesus, come quickly. <laughs> or is it during the good times too? If we are so thoroughly satisfied with Christ, we will want him more and more and more. What more can you get than being in his very presence? And so he's, he wants us to long for that. To see that um, for you to die is is gain. But God has you on the earth for a good reason. And so he's going to keep you here for as long as he has ordained. And if I lose my life tomorrow, then I lived out my days that God appointed for me. And I pray that it would not have been wasted in any way. Not one day. Live that way. Long for Jesus. But if you're going to long for him, what does that mean about your day today and your day tomorrow? I'm going to live as if that's my last day. Now, that doesn't mean you go out and sell everything that you have and give it all to the poor so that you have no clothes and you don't have a car or a house. Or, I'm not suggesting that. He might call you to do that on rare occasions. I do know 
He called Pat Robertson to do that. He sold everything because for Pat, he needed to be a man of faith. And that was a huge test. And that kicked off his ministry because God provided for him. And God just wanted to show Pat, Pat Robertson, I can do amazing things far beyond what you can even daydream about if you trust me. The more we long for him, the more we will follow him, okay? Because it's all about finding our satisfaction and our love and our hope in him. The more I long for him, the more I will live for him here. And he says that he is going to be brought before, um, that people deserted him at his first defense. I'm looking at verse 16. And that he's going to have to give an account again um, but as the Lord stood by, by his side and gave him strength, he'll do that again. And verse 18, he concludes, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. That doesn't mean rescue him as in so that the evil attack doesn't happen. Because guess what? He got beheaded and lost his life. But you know how Jesus rescued him? Brought him safely to his heavenly kingdom. Because he had fought the fight. He had kept the faith. He'd endured hardship. He was not ashamed of the gospel. And he proclaimed Jesus until the day he died. Okay. Let me close it. Father, I thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. And I just ask you, Lord, as, as a man who knew that he could be facing death any day, and yet he was not ashamed, may, may that be the way we live. May we long for the appearing of Jesus. May we long for that day in which we are with Jesus forever and ever. And as we long for that day, because we are so in love with him and want him so much, may that be expressed in how we live for him. Father, I ask that we would be guardians of that good deposit. Father, we live in a day in which the word of God is actually in print and we can pour over it as much as we want. I ask you, Father, that we would treasure it and that we would hide your word in our heart and it would transform us just like it did the Apostle Paul. That, Father, though we might wrestle with a temper or with other issues, God, you can so transform us. We can be known as men and women of the exact opposite character, one of good fruit, an apostle, a, a pastor, a, a proclaimer, of truth, who is filled with love, who is filled with self-control, who is filled with humility, not pride, the exact opposite of what we so wrestled with. So, Father, just thank you for the irony of your work in our lives, that you actually can so transform us that we no longer look anything like what we did. That's, that's your grace, God. Would you work that in our life? Would we cling to you even when in some moments we are faithless? Thank you that you're faithful. Lead us, though, to that faithfulness. Again, thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. So faithful. Show us, Jesus, that we would live for him always. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we, can we